0: For a few weeks now, we've been following the Apostle Paul uh, on his second missionary journey around the eastern end of the Mediterranean world. Our Bible reading this morning, uh, Acts chapter 18, actually includes the conclusion of his second missionary trip. Uh, Verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Uh, Antioch was a home base for both Paul and Barnabas. Their missionary trips started and finished there. Well, our reading uh, this week began with Paul leaving Athens and travelling to Corinth, only 70 kilometres away or so. And we read about the birth of the Corinthian church, a church that we're going to get to know really, really well, not just from what's written in the book of Acts, but also, of course, by way of the two letters that we have in the New Testament from Paul to that church, First and Second Corinthians. Well, uh, Paul's first visit to Corinth must have been in or around the year 51 AD. At that point in time, Corinth was a young church, and vibrant city, a rich trade city with two ports, one facing east, the other facing west. And it was extremely cosmopolitan. Uh, Romans, Greeks, Syrians, Egyptians, Arabs, Asiatics, as well as a sizable Jewish population with a substantial synagogue. Uh, Whereas Athens, as we heard last week from Tom, whereas Athens was small and intellectual and religious, Corinth was big and brash, fashionable and fast-paced. We see uh, that as soon as Paul arrives, he makes some new friends, Aquila and Priscilla, who become important team members in Paul's gospel ministry. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila uh, were Jews who until recently had been living in Rome. However, sometime in the recent past, Emperor Claudius has ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, and uh, um, this, we believe, was probably in response to riots that broke out around the synagogues in Rome in connection with the preaching of the Christian gospel, some Jews believing in Jesus and others not. Well, Paul had a lot in common with this married couple, including the fact that they, interestingly, they all belonged to the same trade. They were tent makers or perhaps leather workers. So Paul uh, stayed with them for the 18 months that he lived in Corinth. And when Paul left, they also left, traveling with him as far as Ephesus, where they, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, set up a new home. Now, in considering uh, this text this morning, there are two transitions in the text that I think are worth noting and talking about. The first transition I want us to see is uh, how, for Paul, we see a transition from self-supported ministry, him funding his own way, to full-time supported ministry, others paying the bills for him as he preaches and teaches. And then the second transition that I think is worth noting and talking about and thinking about is his transition from synagogue-based gospel ministry to home-based gospel ministry. So let's uh, think about the first one, the transition from self-supporting gospel service to full-time supported gospel service. In other words, before Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth from Macedonia, verse 5, before that we can see that Paul worked uh, six days a week in the tent-making business, paying his own way, supporting himself, so that he might, on the Sabbath, be able to go in and do gospel ministry free of charge. However, after Silas and Timothy arrived, they worked to earn the money and pay the bills so that Paul could be supported by them, by others, as he worked now full-time in doing gospel ministry, preaching and teaching about Jesus and the new way of faith in Christ. Well, this transition, the transition that we see reflects the fact that both self-supported gospel ministry and full-time Gospel ministry supported by others, both are beautiful things. What's important is to understand that whether it's one or the other, what's important is that we see Paul continue with this principle, let nothing jeopardize gospel ministry. That's the priority. Let nothing put gospel ministry in jeopardy. Let's listen to what Paul has to say for himself about this in his first letter to the Corinthians, a letter that he wrote not too long after he'd left town, a letter in which he explains his actions. And I'm going to quote uh, Paul at length. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, you can find uh, what, what I'm going to read. Uh, flip with me in your pew Bible if you'd like to page 9 to 8. Page 9 to 8. First Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9. And I'm going to begin at the third verse. Let, let, let's hear about this from Paul himself. This is what he wrote, beginning at the third verse. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this fast. Yes, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because whoever plows and threshes threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything Rather than hinder gospel ministry. Rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Well, let's leave the quotation there. As you will have noticed in that passage, Paul is quick to defend the notion that those involved involved in pastoring congregations, can do so in the expectation of being supported in that work. He he's utterly defends that. It's not wrong to take up a collection. Indeed, we do so here in our services as an act of worship. And out of that collection comes the wages of gospel workers, as well as support for the poor. But in Corinth, if Paul had taken up a co- collection from the Corinthians, they would have misunderstood the nature of the gospel. They wouldn't have been able to understand that actually it was a free gift from God. Forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, eternal life, a free gift from God. They would have misunderstood, they would have misunderstood the message. So one way of articulating that principle is let the method match the message. Or... Let nothing hinder gospel ministry. Now, as for Paul, back in the days when he was called Saul and before he became a Christian, as a young bloke, he would have understood because he knew he wanted to prepare for ministry and he wanted to be a Pharisee, the strictest of all of the, the Judaic sects. And he knew that he was expected to have a trade qualification so that he could preach the Bible, the law of Moses, without being supported by others. So as a boy or as a teenager, he learned how to work with leather and most probably also the waterproof goat hair cloth his hometown was famous for. And he, he took up a trade so that he could offer his services as a teacher of the law free of charge. Well, again, and hopefully not laboring the point, I want us to understand that both self-supported ministry and full-time supported ministry are both right and good. We just need to see and understand what's needed in each context so that ministry can happen in a way that's most effective in different places and at different times. And what I think is truly remarkable, incredible really, is Paul's flexibility. He is able to change strategy very quickly without worry or fretting, without being derailed by any sense of entitlement or concerns about what's fair. His flexibility is, I believe, an extremely important and lasting lesson, an example for the churches in all the ages. Today, uh, Paul's approach to ministry is, uh, in Corinth has given rise to a technical theological term, and that term is tent making. And that technical term, tent making ministry or tent making, has nothing to do with making tents. Rather, it refers to Christian workers who work full time or part time in non church jobs, so to be self supporting in church related work, either in the evenings or on the weekend. Um, Just personally, I I, I learnt a lot about tent making uh, when I was a student at Regent College in Canada in 1997, and in actual fact, I fell in love with the idea. Um, I, I learnt, for example, that even though there are perhaps 2 billion Christians in the world, we cannot afford, we just can't pay the bill for reaching the non-Christian world if we only use full-time supported Christian ministries. We'll never do it. The Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist world, it's growing too fast. You can do the maths for yourself, but plenty of others have done it. The only way the church can evangelize the world if we, is if the majority of missionaries we send and who serve overseas self-support. So, vets, agricultural scientists, doctors, nurses, architects, geologists, oil and gas and mining people, lawyers, ELSR teachers, accountants, etc., etc., etc. That doesn't, of course, mean that we shouldn't send full time supported missionaries as well. They have a vital role. But what it does mean is that the global church needs to recover the flexibility of Paul so that we can mobilize the missionaries that Jesus is already sending every time he calls someone to work, say, in the oil fields of the Middle East or in the stock markets of Hong Kong. Well, 20 years ago, back at Regent College, I resolved to use my science qualifications to become a tent maker. Returning from Regent College, I decided to get a part time job in science or maybe um, a, a slower paced full time job in science so that I could be self supporting in what I really loved, which was talking to people about Jesus and teaching the Bible. Actually, that never eventuated, it never happened. Uh, It wasn't God's plan for my life, or at least it hasn't been so far, because in the 20 years since, in one way or another, I've been in full-time supported Christian service ever since. But that doesn't mean that the day might not come when, for the sake of strategic ministry, I get a full-time job, uh, perhaps in a service station or in In a supermarket, perhaps stocking shelves, if I can do that, I might turn out to be incompetent at that, but you know, uh, give it a go. The day might come when I choose to to get a full-time job like that so that I can self-support in church planting or in church building or in pastoring a new congregation. Paul's uh, flexibility is often lost on the mainstream denominations like the Anglican Church, We can so easily find ourselves in a place where where, where we we say to ourselves, we can't do ministry. We can't do ministry unless we have a church building with a rectory which satisfies all diocesan regulations and requirements and an ordained minister who has done at least four years of theological education and who is supported in a full time capacity. Otherwise, we don't know how to do ministry. Can't go there. Can't respond to the need. We are inflexible where survival demands flexibility. And this is matched, I have to say, by a flexibility in areas where survival demands inflexibility. We ask the Corinthians to support ministry where Paul would have rather have died than have done so. At one extreme, we have churches in this diocese that charge non-Christians for ministry. There are churches where ministry is funded by way of weddings, funerals, hall hire, things like that. Let the nations be a blessing to us is theologically what they're saying. Uh, then there are those churches that use resources—the use resources they have, such as land and space—to create businesses that will fund and support gospel ministry. There are churches, and there are many of them, there are churches that run cafes, not as an outreach venture, but rather as a revenue provider. Also churches that build sports stadia, apartment or office blocks for rent, church schools, even hospices and hospitals. Now, I'm not saying that these such that ventures such as this are entirely right or entirely wrong. I am saying that they are exceedingly dangerous. For a church to have a revenue stream that is utterly disconnected from healthy gospel ministry is a very dangerous thing to set up. Very dangerous. Okay, to be sure, Paul's tent making meant generating an income stream. Indeed, from Christian and non-Christian Corinthians in order to support ministry. But there, there was no conflict. You wanted a tent, you bought a tent, you got a tent. However, when churches go into business themselves, they effectively teach that the work of God requires the support of the world in order for it to survive. And that's a lie. How can we ask God to bless that? But the last time I was in Norwich uh, in the United Kingdom, the cathedral there was attempting to raise 20 million pounds from local businesses in order to undertake restoration work on their 900-year-old building. And yes, it already has a very fine cafe and a very fine school. When you ask the secular world for 20 million pounds to keep your church open, What are you saying about God? What are you saying about God's people? What are you saying about the power of the gospel to change people's lives? Well, the second transition that I'd like to talk about is uh, Paul's transition from the synagogue as the place of gospel ministry to the home. Uh, in other words, at the start of his time in Corinth, Paul was preaching in the synagogue. At the close, he was preaching in the homes, and especially within the home of Crispus, Crispus, the synagogue leader. And well, we, we've already seen, and we're going to see it time and time again, uh, as we follow Paul, we see that when he visits a new town, he always starts off presenting the gospel in the Jewish synagogue. In Paul's day, that was the first obvious, logical place to begin in terms of presenting the gospel. After all, the gospel is a Jewish message for Jews. First for Jews, then after that for Gentiles. It's a a Jewish message about a Jewish Messiah. The gospel message, from this perspective, is, is basically that the hopes and dreams and expectations of the history of the nation of Israel find their fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the promised son of David king of the world, Messiah. And and therefore, when Paul uh, goes into a synagogue, he preaches effectively from two texts. He preaches from the history of Israel as seen in the prophets and the word of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish history, just as the prophets have foretold. Um, the synagogue for Paul and his team was the first and best open door for effective evangelism. But as we've seen here and also we'll see again town after town, it isn't long actually before the the synagogue door closes. The synagogues were all closing their doors to Paul. In Thessalonica, Paul got three Sabbaths in a row before the synagogue rulers chucked him out. In other places it was shorter, in some places it was longer, but they all did it. And even before Paul and the other apostles died, the synagogue door had closed as a place where gospel ministry was welcome. And it's been closed for 20 centuries. It's been closed. It's been closed ever since. Today, Christians are not welcome in synagogues um, uh, if their reason for being there is to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so, So what do you do when a gospel door closes to you? Well, you actually, you look for another one. That's what you do. This is what Paul shows us. He finds another one. And the the open door that Paul found was the front door belonging to Crispus. Okay, so we can't preach and teach in the synagogue. Where can we go? Where can we do this work? We can do it in people's homes. And in New Testament times, overwhelmingly, churches met in people's homes. Church in Ephesus, for example, was going to meet in the home of Priscilla and Aquila, uh, who had moved with Paul to Ephesus. There they stayed. I I suspect suspect that in most cases these were the homes of of quite wealthy people, that that Priscilla and Aquila were people of means. And as part of their house, such as Mary, the the, the mother of John Mark in Jerusalem, these were houses where they had halls or dining rooms that could easily accommodate a hundred or so people. Now, these were houses that had, had at least one room the size of this room. But in other places, perhaps when there weren't such homes available to them, you know, Paul moved from the synagogue to perhaps a public lecture hall, or the marketplace, or indeed on board ships and open spaces, as well as homes, just as Jesus ministered to in synagogues, marketplaces, homes, open spaces, on board ships, and, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, Paul is copying Jesus in his flexibility. That's what's making him flexible. Well, once again, when we consider our time and space, where are the open doors for us to do gospel ministry? Um, At the beginning of the 1990s, uh, the team at Holy Trinity Brompton Church in London discovered something that lots of churches were discovering. And what they were discovering was that people no longer accepted invitations to a church event that was held in church. Now, was a famous evangelist visiting town? Did you want to take your non-Christian friends and family? Well, by the early 1990s, people just saw you coming. And said, thanks but no thanks. No, look, Stephen, I, I know that you're really into this church thing, but that's, that's not me. I don't want to come. Thank you. No. Um, however, the team at Holy Trinity Brompton, and they weren't the only church in England to discover this, that the church in Holy Trinity Brompton discovered to their amazement that a great open door lay open before them in the shape of an invitation to a church event, if and only if it was held in. In somebody's home. Oh, you're you're doing an alpha course in your house at home. Oh, and dinner is included? And I can have a glass of wine. That's okay. That's great. And it's free. Um, And I can ask any question I want to. And I won't be pressured to convert at a moment's notice as the band plays Come Just As You Are One More Time. Well, actually, well, maybe okay, all right, yeah, I'll come to the first one, see what it's like. And the recipe worked. In 1998, over 10,000 Alpha courses were being run across Great Britain, mostly in homes. Today, worldwide, the course is running in 169 countries by way of 112 languages, with 29 million people having completed an Alpha course somewhere. And without question, the Alpha Course was a key component to a significant spiritual revival which occurred in Britain in the 90s and the the, the early 2000s. Millions of people have come to faith in Christ through the Alpha Course. But, I'm sad to say, I think it's had its day. I think the door is closing and may already be closed. I've, I, you see, I've been a leader on an alpha course five times, twice in Victoria, three times in Western Australia. And I've seen people come to faith in Christ through these courses in small numbers. But for me personally, you know, I've had absolutely zero success in ever getting any non Christian family or friends to actually come to one with me. And and that's because they see me coming. Um, Yes, it's in the home. Yes, they can have a glass of wine. Yes, they can ask any question they want. But actually, they know that I'm just trying to convert them, because I am. Uh, When I was a curate in Victoria in the late 2000s, most Christians I knew experienced essentially no success at inviting non-Christian adults to any Christian event, whether or not it was in a church, or a home, or a cafe, or a pub, or wherever. Uh, For one home-based course that uh, I helped run, Christianity Explained, um, uh, over 300 adults connected loosely to our church. Over 300 adults were invited, and one person accepted. And uh, so she, me, and one other person, we did Christianity Explained together, And at the end of it, she didn't become a Christian. Although I heard from mutual friends that years later she did come to faith in Christ. Um, That was a lot of work for very, very very little gain. However, here's the interesting thing. In those same years in Victoria, every week I spent four hours in two local state primary schools as an invited guest, as a CRE teacher, Christian Religious Education. And I taught every week about 80 children the basics of the Christian faith. Who Jesus is, what the Bible says, what Christians believe and why. And basically at that time, non-church adults generally didn't want a bar of anything church related. But... Curiously, they were happy for their children to hear all about it. They're happy for their children to hear about Jesus and the gospel, as long as it was safe, age-appropriate, and fun. Well, um, that door has now closed, at least in Victoria. Perhaps not totally shut, but the government has changed the legislation so substantially that the majority of children uh, no longer get that option not in Victoria. Um, CRE and SRE, Special Religious Education, uh, it, it, those programs still exist in Western Australian state schools. And if you'd like to know more, ask Naomi. Is that all right, Naomi? That's great. <laughs> um, but the question is, how long will this open door remain open? That's the question. And I suspect the answer is not very long. Um, Should that sadden us? Should that surprise us? Well, certainly it should sadden us, but it shouldn't surprise us. As Christians, we're used to getting doors closed in our faces. So here's my question for you this morning. Are you doing effective, groundbreaking evangelism somewhere? Maybe online? In an office? Staff room? On a train? University campus? In a cafe? On a street? Well, don't be surprised when they ask you to leave. Because they almost certainly will. It's only a matter of time. Don't be surprised when they tell you to stop. But when they do, remember Paul. Paul's example is helpful, indeed essential. We must, like him, remain incredibly flexible. A door shuts? That's okay. There'll be another one opening somewhere soon, but we will need God's help to see it. Well, <clears throat> Paul offered himself uh, in the New Testament to subsequent generations of Christians as a template to be copied just as he copied Christ. What I'd like us to see today is his flexibility in terms of both funding ministry as well as finding places to do ministry. We need, we need to be flexible. We need to have his flexibility if we're going to survive as a denomination, as a church, as a congregation, and if we want to see Christians still here in a century's time. God be praised. Amen.